Hello, and welcome to the second season of the Magnolia Tree Podcast. I'm your host, Augustin Passan. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for sticking with us in season two. We've taken a little break and thought about some of the ways that we can improve it. And I think we're going to come back with some cool stuff with trying to improve some of the effects, trying to improve, uh, you know, the quality of the interviews, the regularity of our schedule and whatnot. Uh, Once again, thank you so much. And without further ado, here is my interview of Colleen Lyons, the former head of ethics for Boeing. Hello, today I'm joined by Colleen Lyons, who I will now ask to introduce herself. Hi, Augustine, and thanks for taking this time to get my thoughts on leadership. So I am, uh, I'll start academically. I'm a PhD in values-driven leadership, and my area of interest is around um, personal leadership models. Uh, the other thing is psychological safety and trust. And my, and I also have a bioethics training as well at a medical school. So it's really interesting to, to put those things together and layer on top of that some seminary. I've, I, I have as much of a 360 view, I think, as you possibly can. Um, professionally, I've worked at Fortune 500s. Uh, and um, you know, IBM and, and Gartner, uh, the most memorable work that I've been able to do was serving as the ethics officer at the VA in Seattle. And then uh, I was most recently with Boeing as a senior ethics advisor, and I really had a front seat to observing a culture that can go really right and also go really wrong to catastrophic effect. And um, so I really have, um, I've seen and observed and experienced kind of the best and the worst of um, of corporate America. You know, one thing that's kind of interesting is actually I've interviewed at this point about four people and three of those people have had seminary training. And the last one was uh, a <laughs> Buddhist. So it's kind of interesting to me. It seems like you know, when it comes to ethical leadership, there is that background in whether it be spirituality or religion. Do you, do you, why do you think that is? Or have you, what was your experience with the seminary that kind of drove you to leadership after that? Well, what's, it's interesting. And it's um, any one of us, I, my guess would be if you did a, um, a review of those people that you have surveyed, including myself, it would be a Where's Waldo from a professional perspective. (laughs) (laughs) I think that probably one of the underlying characteristics would be curiosity. And even as a tiny child, or little kid, I was very interested in liturgy and theology. I was captivated by it. And then over time, and then it goes from your um, sort of imagination and the um, and the feeling, then it becomes intellectual and you reject everything and then find your way back theology is an underlying, underpinning element of everything we do in society, and it certainly applies to um, to the work that we oh, do. That's interesting. I'm currently in the rejection phase. <laughs> so, yeah, that um, you should be. <laughs> yeah, no, it seems like college. And you know, it's so interesting because, you know, that was my entire experience is obviously I go to, to Notre Dame, which is a very religious institution. And it's interesting as you go through, through the theology classes, I was surprised that they kind of had a strong trend of, you know, really that that rooting it in historical context and stuff like that. And that was really interesting for me to kind of get a larger perspective on kind of the theology and kind of the ethics that, that, that grew into what is now, you know, the Bible and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I just found it kind of interesting. It is interesting. Anyway, 
Uh, a quick segue. <laughs> well, we have our 25 personal questions. And if you'd like to, to pick a number from one to 25, we can get you going with some fun, fun questions. All right. We're coming in hot at number seven. Coming in hot. Yeah. Number seven. Okay. What's the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm so fortunate in that I have to think about that because there have been um, quite a few. The first one that comes to mind is a woman named uh, Renee Fox, Dr. Renee Fox, and she was the um, sociology chair emeritus at uh, Penn. Mm -hmm. And she is also a bioethicist, one of the first ones in the field. And when I went to Penn, I was an older student. I thought very differently from uh, from my other from the other students. My profile was very different, and I had just come from seminary and going into one of the most secular. You know, these are very yeah. secular institutions, yeah. and I thought very differently. And Renee took me under her wing, and you know, I was in my um, I graduated. I was in my forties. And she's uh, she's broken all. I mean, she has um, her her kindness was through the generosity of her time and her um, affirmation that it's OK. Please be different. In fact, um, so that's the first one that comes to mind. And I carry that with me and I give back whenever I possibly can. I never give the quality of what she gave to me, but at least I can give it a go. One thing I, I do want to ask, because I'm not super familiar with the term, what exactly is bioethics um, as opposed to traditional ethics? Sure. Um, well, the way that I position bioethics is there's the core of ethics, and it's regardless of if it's um, sustainability, whether it's ethical capitalism or bioethics, the, the fundamental values um, and um, thought process is the same. Bioethics has to do with anything, um, I say, related to the body in terms of medicine or science. Got it. It gets broader every single day. because. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, would you like to pick another number? Yes, I'm um, coming in even hotter at nine. Nine. Okay. Um, what is the most surprising conversation that you've had in recent memory? <laughs> I was preparing, a, a friend of mine, um, the, an engineering fellow at Boeing, I met him uh, when I first started working there seven years ago, and we got to talking somehow, and uh, we had a mutual friend at the VA, et cetera. Fast forward, he asked me to do a session or run a session that his faith group, his, his faith group does once a year, it's a men's group. Yeah. They've never had a woman do it before. And, uh, and they asked me, he asked me if I would do it. And I was, um, I chose to do perfection and the undesirability of perfection. Yeah. I worked yeah. on that thing. Like I was going for a Nobel, uh, for some reason, I was really <laughs> nervous because I wanted to reflect well for him. Yeah. And I, I just, the night before, and it was for a weekend, I was really nervous and I went to go get some pizza. And who's standing over there but a man in a monk outfit, a Buddhist monk, a, a pizza place in Stockton, Pennsylvania, Stockton, New Jersey. Uh, like, had to take a triple take. 
And I thought, you know what? I'm really struggling with this. I'm going to go chat him up. Oh. So there I had pizza with a Buddhist monk. And I walked out of that conversation, cool as a cuke, just, you know, like, oh, this is now this is what it's about. And I just always, you know, I picture that it was an extraordinary conversation only because the first of all, the optics of it were hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so that's uh, in that conversation. And uh, what was so ironic is that I was striving for perfection while I'm talking about the lack of desirability around perfection. No, that's a real issue um, that I've noticed in my own personal life and in my friends. And I think it's kind of a pandemic in higher education that, that there is this strong drive for perfectionism in whatever you do. And it just leads to these completely unachievable goals and really unhealthy lifestyles. And it it happened to me too, especially freshman year of university. I came in taking 22 credit hours and just um, working nonstop till two, 3 AM every day. Uh, And it's, it's not sustainable. And eventually you're just going to crash and burn. Um, And it, it came down for me and just my physical health going out the window. I stopped exercising. I stopped working out. I stopped eating healthfully. Um, and then you just start to feel progressively worse. Um, so fortunately I was able to, to figure that out, but it's, it's hard. And it's so funny. I don't want to take the spotlight too long, but I, I was literally talking to my girlfriend about this yesterday night. Um, cause we were talking about setting workout goals and, yeah. and, and her idea was, you know, I need to set a goal where my 100% goal is something I can never achieve. And then when I hit 80%, I'll feel good about myself. When I hit 90%, I'll feel really good about myself. And when I hit 100%, even though it's not going to happen, I'll be you know, on cloud nine. And it, it kind of forced me to sit back and reflect and be like, you know, why not just set your 100% at 80%, <laughs> you know? And then when you hit 110%, you're going to feel even better. Um, but it, it's hard to kind of restructure goals. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions or any feedback on how to, how to try and avoid that perfectionist trap. Well, the one is, um, and it's so funny. It's like, uh, I, I think your girlfriend could be in finance, <laughs> 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 you know, um, and it's, it's, it's all about um, the, the approach and, and the mind, and it comes back to you. Yeah. Um, and it comes uh, fundamentally, and I'm starting to research this more um, because I've fallen away from it, is purpose. Yeah. So the, the purpose, let's use a workout example, um, because I'm in the midst of that right now, like re- yeah. dedicating. Like, Getting back into it. Yeah. And I'm being forced because it's tennis season again. I haven't picked up a racket in six months or so. And, um, and it, uh, so, all right, I got to get back on, the get on thing. It. And, um, the purpose of it is I want to be healthy. Yeah. I want to feel and look vibrant and I want to hold my own on a, either running a 5k or on the tennis court. That's what it's about. It's not about whether I did 30 minutes, um, uh, if I ran for 30 minutes or I did uh, 15 push-ups, even though those are nice goals to have. And I, I drive towards them. In right. sense, it's more of I do not. Um, I, I'm completely inconsistent and in terms of what I do, but I know how I feel. And that's really what it's about. Purpose will never allow. I don't think purpose True 
self-love and like God-given yeah. love has nothing to do with uh, perfection or attainment of a goal. No, no, I totally agree. I, you know, and that's been a big restructuring about working out that I've had to approach myself is kind of looking at it for the perspective of, I feel good when I do this. And I want to do this because I feel good, not because I have some body weight that I need to hit or some, um, you know, body composition, whether it be, you know, the abs or whatever. It's, I don't think it's bad to have goals like that, but they shouldn't be the focal point of whatever you're doing. And I think that applies to whatever you're trying to take, uh, apply goal-driven um, processes too, is that it's not about, you know, achieving the goal and it's a canned phrase, but it's about the journey, not the destination. You know uh, I mean? Yeah. And it's, and it's also how you're wired. Yeah. Uh, there, there are some people, if they don't like my, my son, um, he works out, he works out a lot. He's goal driven. He's always been goal driven. Yeah. Always. And, and that's his, that's the way he's wired. And there's something I can learn from that, um, but it's just not how I'm, um, I'm not wired like that. No, it, it, it's weird because that's an interesting point. How do you distinguish between kind of being goal driven and being a perfectionist? What's the, at least for you personally, what's the distinction between those two? Um, I'm going to switch up that question. Sure, go for it. So um, we've established, um, at least between the two of us, and um, and I know those. And and my, by the way, my session with the gentleman went really well to the point where they sang, "She's a jolly good fellow." At the end, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you know, it, people say, "Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought much about it." Um, so I'd actually like to say, "What's the difference between goals and being Forrest Gump?" Hmm. Because I'm Forrest Gump. Right. I am Forrest Gump. And what I mean by that is I've had these extraordinary opportunities or sat next to people on airplanes and end up on um, like being on a very private journey and ending up on um, Barbara Walters show. I am not exaggerating or kidding. Getting a job at IBM because I got off the wrong floor of the elevator to meet my sister for lunch. So it's and like it. If anybody ever told me I was going to get a PhD, I'm like, you're insane. So it's really about this. It comes back to purpose. um, And and being um, like, it's more of a Monet than it is a, um, you know, a a replica of a photograph. It's, It's kind of blurry, but I know what I'm being called to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not, it's not on a tablet or a piece of paper. It's just, how does this affect my heart, mind, body, and soul? That's the yeah. purpose. And, um, so when you drift from that, so that's my perfection, right? if you will. And when I drift and I drifted quite a bit in this past year, particularly the past six months, um, where I was feeding and nourishing maybe my mind, yeah, I was, but the rest of it out the window. Yeah. And that's where my perfection, if you will, uh, perfection for me equals the, um, the fulfilling of my purpose. So let's put it that. And right. there's no grade at the end. It is not a metric. Right. So I'm kind of interested. And I want to push you a little bit more on that. So you were saying that when you are pursuing that purpose and when you feel like you're on that track for purpose, you can just go, 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 um, yeah. for better or worse. Yes. Yep. 
And then how do you, you know, because it has been, at least for me, a, a year of a lot of self-reflection. Have you kind of come to any conclusions on how to manage that drive to just, you know, run forest run <laughs> all the time? They're very good. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, and so the 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 governing factor or gating factor on the run forest run is, okay, what is what is my life really about? So in the pursuit of my PhD, for example, um, I, I missed times with my family, Christmas, Thanksgivings, um, you know, people turning 50, I didn't get to go to their birthday parties. Mm-hmm. I gave all that up and I will not do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will not do that again. And so that's the, um, I'm not going, I'm not gonna go to law school. I'm not gonna take a job, my next job, that's going to take me away again from that. Yes. So it's just these like the same thing. I'm going to get, I'm not in great shape right now. I want to get in good shape. Yeah. Like don't let that happen again or yeah. on it is probably better. I just say it. No, I think that's really great. Well, now I think it's our time to go into one of our, I know we've been talking about leadership. It's hard to avoid talking about leadership, but I was wondering if you would like to now go into one of our leadership questions, which means pick a number from one to 20 and I'll shoot you into something. Well, I'll tell you what I, seven and nine are my favorite numbers. What's your favorite? Interesting. What, what, so why, why are they your favorite numbers before know. we get into leadership? There's no reason. No, I think I was like in fourth grade and I decided those were gonna. Those are my numbers. Seventeen. Seventeen is my number. I don't know what what it is about seventeen. I love the number seventeen. Go for it. I'd like seventeen. Number seventeen is what should we read, listen to, and watch to learn more? And this can be a broad, general approach to it, or if you have any specific books you might want to talk about, anything that's strongly influenced you recently. Uh, yeah, well, so I'm not allowed to say Netflix. I want. <laughs> I, I think you're allowed to say Netflix. I had more screen time, and I am not exaggerating, and my family will vouch in the past year than I had cumulatively in the previous years and decades that preceded the last year. And it's been fascinating. I love anything with the subtitle. Uh, I love anything with the subtitle pretty much. I tell you, I just read a book. That is, you know, it's, and it's written by James McBride. Do you know of him? He wrote that name rings a bell. Yeah, he wrote The Color of Water, but he was also a journalist uh, at the Wall Street Journal, mm. and he's a highly accomplished jazz musician. So he okay. wrote The Color of Water a good two decades ago, and um, I was driving down uh, the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and I heard him interviewed on NPR. I got off at the first exit and got that book. Um, and it is a memoir of he and his 11 siblings who were wow. raised by his mother in Harlem, and they didn't even know she was Jewish. Oh, and, interesting. And like there were, um, she worked all the time. Those kids were on their own and all of them have master's degrees. Wow. So anyhow, and James lives on my road or lived on my road, mm. like a friend, um, up in uh, here in Bucks County in Pennsylvania. And so I got to know James a little bit and he just came out with a new book and I text him. I didn't hear back from him. Uh, <laughs> I said, this is like scat meets doo meets rap. 
the dialogue is unbelievable. And these oh. characters, it takes place in, um, in um, uh, Brooklyn in the 70s, and it's the black community. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, these characters and the lessons you learn. And so it's, it's, it's called um, Deacon Kong. Uh, I think my dad actually read that. I think he was reading about that. Was he? I just came yeah. to my sister. And um, so I just, it, 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 it's, it's like reading it. And I grew up outside of New York. So right. I'm somewhat, I could totally relate to the places he was talking about. Right. So that was really, um, I really thought that was a wonderful book. And I also, another one more uh, historical book, uh, that I got from the Dean of Leadership at Marietta College. I just finished an executive residency there, actually right. last week. And um, he gave me this book by David McCullough, who's an historian and it's called Pioneers. Hmm. And I finally got to read it about two or three months ago. And it's about the, um, the Northwest expansion of the United States. Yeah. I thought I knew history, I know nada. After, you know, I realized. Yeah. So Marietta is where it was kind of, it's where the pioneers started mm -hmm. um, the Northwest expansion. And then I thought, oh my gosh, we talk about a VUCA world and I'm very much uh, tying VUCA um, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity right. um, into my leadership work. And I thought, man, it's a conceit to think that we are, well, we are in a different time. I'm calling you Google 2.0. No. What they what they experienced setting up um, the Northwest uh, Territory, it was pure, beautiful leadership. And I didn't right. expect to get it out of that book. Yeah. And what were what would you say were your big takeaways about leadership from that book specifically? Well, I've I, I have a model um, that I built and it was my research that I did at, at Boeing. And it's, you know, we're in a VUCA environment, a term created by the Army War College after um, the Cold War. So it's a VUCA, it's a VUCA world. And after the Cold War, I mean doctrine just really had to change because historically, um, you know, we've been in land wars with right. The eyes of your of your enemy, and all that has changed. And yeah. um, so the we started to see VUCA. It's first showed up in the leadership uh, literature in '95, and it has increased remarkably in the past five years. Yeah. So I'm calling what our environment now is VUCA 2.0, meaning. Um, whereas we had manufacturing forever, yeah. it's really about innovation and intellectual property. And we still need manufacturing yeah. the environment, the global environment. So anyhow, that's the environment that we're in. And then the leadership part is um, from an organizational perspective, you need ethical leadership. That's my assessment. Um, yeah. And that's why I'm building personal leadership models now, because one model doesn't carry it all. If you have ethical leaders, most likely you're going to have psychological safety, which is at the team level. And yeah. then next is trust. Individuals who are in that kind of environment will trust and feel psychologically empowered. And that's how you get to what I call VUCA voice, where in organizations, the employees will speak up contrary to conventional wisdom without fear of being marginalized or hurt. 
and it's essential in VUCA 2.0 because your competitors will steal a march on you if you don't understand what's going on up and down and around, not only your organization, but your supply chains too. No, I think that, and, and would you say that's the core of what you think ethical leadership boils down to is like a trust, whether uh, between, you know, your boss or whoever, your superior and whoever you're working with. Uh, I know people like to use the the leader and the followers, um, mm-hmm. that kind of saying, or what would you boil down your own personal brand of ethical leadership to? Maybe that's a better question. Yeah. Uh, well, that's um, so the reason I chose ethical leadership for my model, mm-hmm. is I thought I need this. I need a sumo wrestler model. Yeah. And I looked at all the positive models and I didn't want to go to ethical leadership because I'm an ethicist and I thought I'm just going where it's comfortable. I'm not going right. to do that. No, but I did. <laughs> and um, all these beautiful leadership models, servant leadership, transformational leadership, um, uh, adaptive leadership. They have great attributes, but the one differentiation that I have seen to be the Achilles heel, whether it's at a fortune 50 company or a large healthcare company is that leaders and managers and peers do not call one another out when there's a violation of a cultural norm. And that is what differentiates ethical leadership. I've been thinking more, and I mentioned earlier that I'm building um, and I'm testing right now a personal leadership model. And I tested it with my students at um, at Marietta, and I briefed with the dean, and we're going to do a full-on study because one size no longer fits all. Yeah. And um, individuals need to understand what their leadership model is. So I don't, I don't have, I have attributes that I aspire to be, but there are different pieces of different leadership models that I think are most, most relevant for how I am and how I can negotiate with other people about what we think. Mm -hmm. And what makes it so powerful, like to break that cultural norm, whatever it be, what is, what do you think kind of stems from that, that adds like a, adds value or adds meaning to an organization? If with uh, absent that, that's where I've seen, observed and experienced toxic cultures. Yeah. The way people will treat one another is so inconsistent with what the company's stated values are. If you don't no. have values, if you don't have them stated, no harm, no foul. It is free range person. No. When you espouse these and you have the cognitive dissonance that how can someone act like that? Yeah. And get away with it. It just suboptimizes everything. No. Everything. One of the the problems I've been finding cuz I've I'm currently going through that kind of job search cycle the initial right out of college looking for a job is that it's so unreliable what companies state their mission statements to be. Um, from what actually is the internal culture mm-hmm. and w- what is leading to that break, you know, cause you'd think that, and I know it's easy. You can put whatever you want on a web page, you know, it doesn't, that's not reflective, but it seems like there is this at least desire, um, from higher ups to have some sort of mission or, or value driven structure to an organization. And why is that just completely non-reflective. 
I'm, I'll go back to um, hold it, it comes down to accountability. Yeah. And leaders, you know, in the, especially in very large organizations, um, you know, there are ex, it's, you know, think of it as a pyramid and it's at the tippy top and up there, up and around there, um, there's more of an, there's the um, metric for this would be employee engagement surveys. All the results are rosier at the top. Yeah. So the more you go, and I did, um, I did a fair amount of analysis when I was at Boeing because I thought these numbers are not consistent with what I observed down below. So then I started, these corporations have seven, eight layers. Yeah. And I started, I started researching and green is good. Yellow's caught, you know, could um, not on course, but have an action plan. And then there's red, which is like, we were off course at the top two levels, maybe three levels of the organization. You're pretty green. The further mm. down you go, the red pops up. Yeah. Why are we looking at the results just from the top? So no. there's not an appetite to go below. And to me, that is, an Achilles heel in ethical cap that impedes ethical capitalism because we're not walking the talk. Right. No, absolutely. Then, cause I know you've um, had experience, I'm sure through all layers of, of leadership throughout your career. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, when you're in a position where you might not be that, you know, top, like the top leader in a, the CEO or whatever, how do you impart that ethical value in a middle or lower tier as a leader? What can you do to try and build that sort of culture? Well, that's a, I, that's a fantastic question. And it's the, I think it's the billion dollar question yeah. uh, because that's where the relevancy of those yeah. values means more the lower that you go. Because people, the lower that you go, there's a less of a sense. And this is a huge generalization. Yeah, of, obviously. A lot of my questions have been generalization. <laughs> um, uh, there's the lack of, the perception that there's a lack of power, the lower down you go. Right. What's interesting is that I'm, I, I also, um, giving voice to values is something that I'm, uh, have become expert in and giving voice to values is, um, was developed by Mary Gentile, Harvard business school ethics professor who had an existential crisis when she saw that her students really didn't see the relevance of the ethics work she was doing uh, for their work on wall street. Mm -hmm. And also she saw some of her students wrapped up in some skin, you know, uh, ethical leadership failures. So she yeah. went away and she developed a training and a way in which one would problem solve a values conflict the same way you would problem solve um, the fact that you're um, uh, over schedule and over budget, you know. Yeah. And um, so using the having the ability as a manager or a first line leader to enable your people to speak up without getting shut down, without saying, don't you dare say anything, because if you bring that up, we're going to have to we're going to be even further behind on schedule. And that means I'm going to lose my job. Right. So it's the and that but that kind of voice, that ethical leadership, the ability to give voice has to be consistent up and down and around. And and you have very high standards and you hold people to them. But where there's a variance, you allow them to speak up. 
You allow them to say, um, either from a technical perspective, um, that there's an issue or a cultural perspective, if there's disrespect or lack of integrity. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a big part of that as well. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm going to bring up a little bit of my personal experience with that kind of thing. I worked for a very large pharmaceutical company in Austria. (laughs) I won't throw out any names. I think you know who I'm talking about. Um, And I definitely felt like I came in and, you know, I was an intern. I wasn't anyone important. But I saw some issues that I wanted to try and positively influence the issue then being that when I brought those ideas to my boss, none of them, it was that exact same thing. There was that, uh, you know, don't, don't break the mode. You can go and talk to my assistant. We'll schedule something next, next week, next month, next three months. Oh, you're gone. Shame. (laughs) Um, But one thing that I felt very acutely was I felt disenfranchised. Like I felt a lack of ability to make any shift. And I think a lot of people, aspire to the type of leadership that you're talking about, but they're not in a position where they can, you know, take on the battle of fighting their boss um, on those topics. Do you think there's still ways that you can be a positive influence in that type of environment? Or is that kind of like a, a situation where your best bet is just to leave that company? <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting because you just framed giving voice to values. Um, yeah. And it's, and it is not, it's not binary no. and it isn't, you know, it, it, there are super bad bosses and sometimes it's uh, for the most part. And it's like a bell curve. Yeah. You know, you have brilliant bosses. And then you have those and uh, Lord knows I've had those on the tail end of the bell curve, but most are in the middle. In fact, most yeah. of us are in the middle. Yeah. When you have, this goes back to purpose, Augustine. It is. Yeah. When you have a personal purpose and a shared purpose, and the the purpose is to make the organization better, when the purpose is to make your teammates better, when the purpose is to make your boss not only look better, but be better without denigrating an existing personality or person, that's contagious. And yeah, yeah, you're going to take hits. But if you if you have your purpose and you know what your non-negotiables are, you're going to be a little more crafty than and I've learned this the hard way. You're going to be more crafty than to take on your boss. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's you you get alignment, you get um, uh, you get allies and it's to figure out a common solution to optimizing performance. Yeah, that's the purpose of having a values driven culture. No, I, I think that's interesting, though, because, you know, one of the things I felt kind of an, an, an internal conflict with is that, you know, when you're in a bad company, my gut reaction, and I think this is a trend among younger people, is that, oh, you know, with the flexibility of the Internet, how easy it is to find new jobs, I'm just going to leave. Like, I, I'm going to find a better job. Um, but at the same time, as someone who wants to to pursue ethical leadership, I always feel that bit of internal contention where it's like, OK, I can go to a company where, you know, there's already this really positive, healthy culture and it's really enjoyable. But I also have a little bit of that, you know, I want to be a, a hero is an extreme yeah. way to say it, but I want to be that hero. Like I want to like this is a company that needs help um, and needs change. And I like I guess. Do you think 
Hmm. It's hard to frame this into a question, but I'm kind of like, do you think it's healthy to try and pursue that change in an organization? At what point would you kind of be like, is this a lost cause? And I know these are incredibly specific and like very individual case by stuff, but do you have any like rules of thumb? And I know you you probably don't, but um, I guess what would your be advice to a young person who might be looking to switch a career to a healthier organization? Do you, would you advise them to stick it out to try and be that change? Or do you think it's, it's better for them to try and go to a new organization where that culture is more rooted? I, I, it's an absolute, it's such a relevant question because um, I actually think that this notion of job hopping um, or the desire to job hop, even though there's like digital nomads, it's really pretty fantastic. Um, I think there's some mythology in that um, because as people get invested in organizations, so that's this, this notion, it's almost like a pressure that, oh my gosh, you've been at a job for more than three years. What's wrong with you? Right. (laughs) So I, it goes down to, um, so it's a, and again, this is, it, it depends on how you're wired but what would be applicable for everyone is, do you feel as though getting up every day that your values are really being uh, compromised and yeah. you as a person are being compromised? And if the answer is like unequivocally yes for a couple of months in and there's no significant variable that's about to change, such as those layoffs will be over. Yeah. Um, a new CEO, like those, you you have to get through those things. And, yeah, of course. You know, but it, and if this, if you just see this culture all over the place where people are super disrespectful for one another, they don't answer emails. You know, responses, respect. Like these are small, tiny things. Yeah. That are representative. If you're an intern, you're in and you're out, and it's like, okay, this is going in the experience book. Yeah. Um, And if it's your first job and you just see, you know, it's just overall inconsistent. It's not that, um, God, I happen to end up in this terrible environment. Everybody talks about their boss. There's more, there's so much passive aggressive behavior. Um, But I see other areas of the company that attracted me here in the first place. Yeah. Hang out a little bit and I'm going to see if I can get over there. But if it's, if it's over um, a period of time, you're starting to feel sick. You're starting to, take time off yeah because you can't you just can't get motivated or you're completely phoning it in it's time to go yeah no I think that's that's great advice because that was the way I was feeling in my company was even as an intern only there for three months by the end of it I was I was just like this is I I'm phoning it in. I gotta get out of here like I'm waiting for it to then you get survival mode but think of the loss of that that company saw you walk they saw your back and they didn't even notice and instead of it being oh my gosh he's a gem we want him to come back we want him you know let's see what we can work out um they because that culture was probably intern equals little or no value yeah oh my gosh how short-sighted um that that is no so, yep it's really about respecting individual person no the, sh- the short-sightedness is is a real thing that i see a lot the inability and, and you know it, it's funny 
because I have a ton of friends who are just ridiculously qualified, like way too overqualified. And they're applying to, you know, the scholarships, whether it be Rhodes or whatever. And I know those people in and out and I know they're perfect for it, that they're going to go out there and be like the A-lister at the top of it. They're going to kill it. Um, and then it's like, well, he's just a kid from Minnesota who studied like higher level math in, in high school or whatever, you know, and it's just like, and then here, you know, and, and it feels it, there's a guilt for me because I have this impressive background. I, I you know, I went to China. I grew up yeah. in China. You know, I went and studied at like a local school and that's appealing. It's got a superficial, you know, a spark, a glimmer to it. Um, and I'm getting into some of these scholarships um, where I know, you know, my buddy here who's just a math guy from Minnesota is going to do way better than I can <laughs> in that scholarship. I'm, I have no, like, I'm not disillusioned about that at all. And it feels, you know, it feels hard and it kind of hurts to see that, that that value is not being recognized. And obviously it's hard to recognize value when you're getting thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but thousands of really, really, you know, stellar, individuals applying but i think there's a lot of companies where there's not that pressure there's not that you know they're they gotta like go through all these things um and there's there's an inability or at least not a structure in place to try and find those gems and and, and to recognize when there can be a positive influence and that's what hurt me when i when i walked away from my yeah. internship and i'll give you a little pushback on that um, yeah and that is uh traditionally diversity First, it was diversity, then diversity and inclusion, now diversity, equity and inclusion. And we have traditionally, you can, when I say those words, you probably yeah. have pictures in your mind. I have, um, I'm adamant about the fact, well, first of all, yeah, that's <laughs> women, people of color, of course, um, yeah. uh, sexual orientation, uh, those need to be attended to. But please yeah. put right up there the high math guy from Minnesota who's unassuming in a meeting. Uh, listen, because when that person speaks, they're going to say something that no one else has thought of. Give them the space to speak. Absolutely. So he or she or they feel psychologically safe bringing up something that's really counter. Look at Elon Musk. I mean, he's like the poster child um, for for being spaceships. <laughs> yeah. He's watching it long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's like you have, you have Elon Musk's um, maybe the good and the bad that goes with that. Yeah. But just to categorize, man, I would, I mean, I'd be all over the interns and actually we did the reverse mentoring. Um, yeah, we did. So, we did. Oh my gosh. Companies that are not excavating that value. And it's a yeah. part it's to me, this is a profit and loss decision. This oh, is yeah. Being, oh, be nice to the interns. No, 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 no. No, no. You want to keep them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and I was I was I was talking about this last week in a, in a different podcast that I was recording where it was literally um, I was speaking with one of my professors at Notre Dame, actually, and she is a huge advocate for for paying attention to the to the, the quote unquote introverts, because um, there are a lot of people in the office who, you know, don't have the confidence like I do. And I'm sure you do to just be that loud voice to come out uh, raring. 
Um, there's a lot of people who, who can't do that and it's hard for them to like speak up in a meeting and it's really important to create the space for that because yeah. you get some really brilliant ideas. Like those people are in their heads, you know, they're thinking, um, a lot and it, it's yeah. important to tap that. Yeah, absolutely. That's, and that's a, that's a management skill to your earlier question. First of all, the nature's ratio is two ears and one mouth. And please, leaders, just because, and people sit at the head of the table, use that metric to your advantage. If nothing else, just yeah. be quiet. Be quiet. Listen. Yeah. No. Listening is is a, a super crucial skill. It, it, it's, in my opinion, one of the, and, and I know I'm not, I don't have a huge leadership background yet um, working on it, but that's always been what I valued the most out of any form of leadership is someone who can listen and mm -hmm. really listen mm -hmm. is always, those people always genuinely impress me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're doing a wonderful job of that right now, listening to me, you know, it, I've, I've been in, you know, calls and, and conversations where you don't get that, that, that return. And it feels really good when someone listens to you and really, really pays attention to what you're saying. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> Even though I'm meant to be the interviewer and <laughs> no, I appreciate learning. you listening to me as well. Well, I think that uh, is about it for our time. If you have, do you have any, Normally, I like to give a little space for, for people who come on at the end to plug whatever they're working on, if they have a project, if they have a book, something like that. Do you have anything you, you, you'd like to share? Yeah, for sure. Um, the two things is I just got certified in psychological safety, uh, Edmi, Amy Edmondson's um, uh, organization, and I am doing psychological safety scans for organizations, do it complimentary um, because I'm both building my skill, but it's also it's a real value add for the organization. So yeah. um, anyone can can reach me for that. The other thing is that I am um, I'm now researching this personal leadership model. I really believe that this is something that's going to be a game changer because part of the model is once you've established it, it's um, applying what your personal leadership model is to VUCA, the VUCA world. Yeah. And my students who had done, who I um, done this with, first of all, they were very surprised where they landed in terms of what was important to them. I thought they were all going to go servant leadership and servant leadership ended on the bottom, but some yeah. elements of it were on the top. Yeah. And they went with, with two others and that surprised them. So it's just the exercise itself. Then they took what they, what were the top elements and applied it to VUCA. One, 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 um, one scholar has said, I have nothing in, I can't support volatility. None of my attributes that I chose support volatility. So if you want to be a VUCA 2.0 leader, who's going to be able to uh, lead in an environment with environment, social and governance standards that are emerging. The um, SEC just said, we're looking at this, there are going to be metrics for it. Yeah. This is serious. If yeah. you want to compete uh, and do it well and do it with the least amount of friction in your organization, you need to think about how you are as a leader, how your team is, and yeah. negotiate about what the organization looks like. No, absolutely. So that I'm also, because um, I'm building the database, I want to get different perspectives. So um, people who would uh, be kind enough to take the survey that I'm sending out, and then I'm, I'm going to be presenting the, re, uh, the initial results uh, next April at yeah. the, uh, Leadership. 
Where where can they find that stuff? Is there do you have a, a website or something? I do. Give me about a week because I'm still in t- incorporating a couple of things and then we'll drive people there. Okay. Circle back. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Colleen. It's been so wonderful speaking to you and I hope you have a wonderful day. Oh, I will. And same to you, Augustine. Keep me posted on your perambulations. I will. I will. <laughs> You've been listening to the Inspiring Brave Leaders podcast by Magnolia Tree. This is Daliana Eliesh, the editor of the podcast. Feel free to reach us or visit our website for more bursts of inspiration around leadership. You can find a link for our website and our social media platforms in our bio. Thank you for tuning in.